Hi, everyone, and welcome to the third episode of the Stay Invested podcast, where I bring on world-changing leaders to talk about politics, finance, technology, and of course, the impact that my guests create in the world. I'm your host, Jason Barsima, the co-founder and president of Halo Investing, and I'm honored to have Salo Shredny, the former CEO and chairman of TradeStation on the show today. Salo, welcome. It's good to be here, Jason. Thank you for having me. Well, I know you're a busy man, so I always appreciate you taking the time, but uh, I know our audience will be really looking forward to this one. Well, I hope I can keep them entertained and they don't push that forward button. <laughs> I, have, I have no doubts. And so, um, you know, with that, you've done a lot in your career and, and you've got a, uh, a very interesting background. And, and so, you know, really starting off, I would love just for, you know, our audience to hear, you know, a little bit about your background, Salo, and, and how did you get to where you are today? Sure. So, so uh, I went to the uh, the Harvard of Central Pennsylvania. I went to Penn State. Got my undergraduate degree there, and after that, I was going to go to law school. But I'm still waiting uh, to make it to law school. I always was very entrepreneurial. Had several businesses while I was going uh, to college. And uh, when I there uh, at the student union, I started interviewing with the uh, big six or big eight accounting firms back then, which are big four. Uh, ended up being uh, Arthur Anderson for eight years, uh, making senior manager there. They went to work for what was the world's largest uh, pharma, uh, generic pharmaceutical company in the world, Divax, that eventually sold to Tiva. And uh, then I uh, connected, uh, I was fortunate enough to connect uh, with great entrepreneurs that had uh, a great company to scale and together we scaled it uh, from what was a small technology company to be what today is the seventh largest broker in the U.S. So I've, had, I've been very fortunate uh, to have a great career and, and, and uh, have great partners along the way. And that's in that uh, in that what was a small company, of course, was TradeStation, uh, which we'll get into in a second. But you know, in regards to you know really your background from the accounting side, you know, was there anything that really you know helped of having that accounting background in regards to actually running a company as you know, many of our listeners, they, while many of them are, you know, professional investors and RIAs, most RIAs are also entrepreneurs. So yeah, I'd love to kind of get your take on, you know, what did you apply from your previous background into, you know, trade station and running companies? Yeah. So, so accounting gives you a pretty good general background, right? It doesn't matter what business you run, understanding a balance sheet, understanding an income statement and, and understanding what levers help you move. Uh, your business is, is important. So, you know, when you, when you have a startup like, 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 uh, like, like many of your listeners may do or, 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 or potential customers, uh, it's always important to know what levers you can push, what levers you can move uh, in order to move your business because uh, it's very easy to get uh, focused on the wrong thing. And I think that the accounting background always allowed me uh, to really understand the balance sheet, understand how all the pieces move, understand what you can do uh, to move the levers. And, and so much of what, um, what business is today uh, is really on the finance side and the balance sheet. If you look at, for example, Apple, uh, I think most people don't realize that they don't need a dollar of capital to run Apple because they basically collect money up front before they got to pay everything. So I think that having accounting and finance background really prepared me well uh, to understand how to how to le how, how to leverage and how to scale a business. Mm. No, that's that's interesting and kind of a perfect way into TradeStation, as you know, I'm sure many of our listeners know TradeStation. But talk us really about the foundation of of TradeStation and and uh, 
you know, I know you weren't the the founding CEO or the the founder of TradeStation, but you sure as heck you know helped scaled it. And so, you know, what what appealed you to TradeStation, and and really what was the problem that TradeStation you know set out to solve? Yeah, so so TradeStation was was founded by uh, two beautiful Cuban immigrants that came here with nothing and uh, really lived the American dream. What I saw were two great people with a great product that solved a great need in the marketplace. So. Uh, what, what's important about any business is what is the problem you're trying to fix. And uh, for TradeStation, the idea there was that uh, like Halo, institutions had an upper edge and had all great tools to allow them to, to really, really uh, canvas the market and identify trading opportunities and execute on them on an efficient and quick basis. And um, the, what TradeStation did is really level the playing field. And uh, until the year 2000, when we, be, when we went from being a software company to being a broker, uh, we empowered people to really um, watch the markets and understand the markets. And then in 2000, like I said, when we became a broker, uh, we allowed them to execute those trades efficiently, quickly, and, and uh, really like most institutions. Institutions had the tools because they had the budgets to build them, but yet um main street was not able to compete and what we did was level the playing field by giving them the right tools well and that's you know an interesting concept and obviously very popular within fintech right now is is really just democratizing the tools that the institutions have and and empowering the people right and and as you pointed out and obviously thank you for your compliment about halo that's exactly what we do on on the structure note and protective investing side that being said, you know, sometimes the institutional tools can be really complex. Like, how did you guys think about simplifying these tools so the everyday, you know, active trader would be able to understand, you know, what he or she is looking at, yet still having that power of the institution in their hands? You know, that's the power of technology. It's the power of, of the user experience. Uh, uh, now more than ever, uh, the companies that win are the companies that are able to what I do is call, provide the easy button. Everybody wants the easy button. Everybody wants to easily understand something. And uh, and for me, it's it's easy to complicate things, but uh, you don't truly understand something until you simplify it. And what we try to do is simplify some pretty complex uh, complex problems or complex uh, indicators in, in effect and be able to do that. Uh, and, and for us at TradeStation, the key was uh, functionality. So how much functionality you give a customer uh, to give them as much flexibility, but at the end of the day, still make it easy to use. So, so you have some power users that you can never please because they want more and more and more. And then you have users that are just looking uh, for, for ease of use. So it's always a balance to do that. And I think that if you look at some of the big, you know, certainly FinTech startups, uh, somebody like Robinhood, they've really simplified the complex, right? It's very easy to open an account. It's very easy to put up a chart. It's very easy to, um, to, to see which way it's going. So, so to me, that's, that's when you're appealing to directly to consumers, uh, ease of use and the user experience becomes uh, very, very important. Yeah, no, I think it's, um, I think that's a really interesting point as well, because you, know, you look at Kind of the the rise and and ultimate uh, fall of Yahoo, right? Where you know Yahoo came out and it was, you know, it was really innovative. There were so many tools that you could have on Yahoo, and then all of a sudden, you know, if it's interesting if you look at Yahoo over time and the different releases that they had from a product perspective, it became really clustered, right? And 
and people were not overly sure what Yahoo wanted them to do. And that was the rise of Google, right? It was you're searching or you're feeling lucky. That was the only two things that you can do. And almost still to this day, it's the same. How did you guys approach that internally with TradeStation when you could have every bell and whistle and gadget that you could have from a trading perspective? How did you navigate clients through that who might be relatively new to investing or overwhelmed by these tools? You know, it's, it's, it's not easy. So, so what we did at TradeStation well is, is we included some education because um, people really want to learn uh, and people really want to grow and achieve their best self. So what we gave them, we had this balance where we allowed people to do things easily, but at the same time for power users, allow them to expand. And, and, uh, and it's, it's, it's a challenge, right? Because you want to put more bells, you want to put more whistles, but I think the Google example you gave was perfect. All Google did is they put one line, uh, which was the search, right? Uh, today, it sounds simple, but that's really all that was. I mean, when you pull up Google, that's all there is, it's one line. Mm-hmm. Uh, right where you put in what you're searching for, like you said, search or, or, or feeling lucky, um, and, um, and 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 that's 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 the magic you have to create. So you need people to think out of the box and figure out what is it that's complex, why is it complex, and how do we simplify it? Was TradeStation a brokerage firm or was it a technology company, in your opinion? And why is that? Why is that differentiation important? So, so what, what I'll tell you is that, uh, that we, our financials very much look like a brokerage firm. Uh, we smell, we talk like a brokerage, but at the end of the day, the only reason we existed was technology, right? We all understand that if we didn't have what was the best trading platform in the marketplace, customers would not come to us. So, so it's very important in business to understand who you are and how you're differentiated. Consumers really don't get... 30 or 40 different messages, right? Uh, they want one message and you gotta, you gotta pound it over and over again. And if you look at, at, um, at some of the best brands, right? They're very clear on what they are and what they do. Uh, and this is what we did. I mean, we were very focused on the active trader and we were not from Main Street America, right? So we, we, if somebody did not trade actively, our model was designed to make it prohibitive for those people uh, to trade with us. And really that's not people we wanted to support, people we wanted to maintain. So I always argued, I, I, uh, I don't want a million customers. I'm happy with a hundred thousand customers, but I want those hundred thousand customers to be either ones that generate 80% of the trades in the marketplace. So the idea really is to know who you are. So if you look at, you know, um, I, I like Geico, uh, cause they're so clear. We're going to save you going to save you 15% in one minute, whatever it is. I mean, you know what Geico stands for, right? They're going to save you money. Uh, so it's, it's very clear and very focused and all they do is around that messaging. Yeah. And, and I think that it's, it's important as, you know, from any entrepreneur and we, you know, talk about this and deal with it firsthand at Halo is recognize what you're good at, right? Be good at a few things or be great at a few things, I should say, instead of being good at a hundred things. And, you know, did you have a Did you have a comment on that, Sal? No, like no. I, I I I get worried about the few, because um, it's all right, right. A few to you may be ten. A few to me. So what I always tell people is is one or two things is enough. If you do something really well, right. Uh, if you do one one or two things really well, and it's the market's big enough, and and uh, uh, and you do it well enough, you are going to build a lot of value. So I think for entrepreneurs, it's very, very important to know who they are and what they do well. And I think what happens is they lose sight 
a lot of entrepreneurs will decide of really what is the one thing they do well, because if you want to get bigger, you end up doing two, three, four things. The exception is Amazon, which is really a puzzle, uh, right? I mean, they, they do many things and they do it well. They treat them as separate businesses, uh, but but they're the exception, not the rule. So, so to me, you got to go with, with, the, with, with the best average and the best average is to do one thing or two things at most and to do it really, really well. Well, and even with Amazon, right? They, they started with books. You know, they didn't start with every single product under the sun. And, and what I think is really interesting about Amazon's model is that, you know, not only do they just sell a bunch of products, they just make the process efficient, right? They're, they're operational experts. And they look at every part around the value chain to see, you know, whether you believe in that statement of their operational experts or not is, is your prerogative. But at least that's really what they take, try to take a look at is every point along the value chain, how can I make that more efficient and cheaper? Yeah. Amazon's a great company uh, because uh, they're great at helping people start up a business, right? So if you and I wanted to sell uh, glasses engraved with Halo um, and, and 10 different glasses, you know, the reality is that by Monday morning, we could set up, we could set up our site, we could set up, we could provision them in, in China or maybe in South America now. Uh, we, could, we, could, we, could, we could get a designer uh, to auction off and create designs in, in God knows where. And by Monday or Tuesday, we could be up and running. That, that would not have happened before, before Amazon and before the advent of the internet. But what's interesting about Amazon is it's very easy to start up, but they make it almost impossible to scale up. Because if we start selling glasses with Halo uh, and that we're doing well, they have the data and they're going to start launching their own glasses. Uh, right and competing with us. So what's interesting about them is they really empower the long tail economy, but yet it's very hard to get very big if your platform is Amazon. That's an interesting comment about you know empowering the long tail of the economy, right? And and I feel like we we witnessed that firsthand even at Whole Foods, where I've been noticing my favorite granola is no longer stocked and it's the 365 brand. Um, and uh, I think you're spot on and. And you know, with that, and, and switching topics a little bit, but from lessons learned as an entrepreneur, right? Is, you know, what are some of the pitfalls that you ran into while scaling up TradeStation, and and you know, what were some of the lessons learned from that, Zello? You know, uh, I, I think focus is super important, and we talked about it, we touched on it a minute ago. Knowing who you are, so it's very easy to go chase uh, shiny objects, right? And uh, jerk the organization depending of what on what's right. Or what's wrong? I was um, I was listening this morning that um, that, that I forget who it is. Uh, it's a women's uh, retailer that also owns Home Goods. Um, said uh, said that, that, that even with 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 all the craziness we have going on, they said they're not going to go online. I don't know if that's the right decision or the wrong decision because uh, I don't know their business. But the bottom line, it's pretty interesting that they know who they are, what they do. And they're not, they're going against sort of the flow, which is everybody ran to go online. So I think I think it's interesting that that basically uh, they know who 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 they are, and, and and you can tell. Listen, you know, I mentioned Geico. Uh, they know who they are. Uh, Progressive Insurance, another brand. They know who they are, and and, and they grew in, in very small niches, got very big, and then expanded like the, the same way we talked about Amazon. So I think. That the most important thing you can do is, is really focus and know who you are and stay true to who you are. And 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 kind of with that, from a scaling perspective, as you know, TradeStation obviously had some tremendous success. 
what were some of the approaches that that you guys took in regards to acquiring your customers and being able to scale? You know, it's no secret of how much money, you know, a, a retail specialty brokerage like a Robinhood, you know, will pay or a Motif, you know, paid, um, you know, for their customers. What about you guys? You know, what was what was kind of your secret sauce? You know, we, we started with, with doing a lot of TV and over time, like like everybody else, most of our money went online uh, because online acquisition allows you to do a lot more testing and allows you to better measure. Uh, I mean, the tools that exist today for acquiring customers and tracking customers are just unbelievable. Uh, when you run an ad, you didn't know which ad or why people called or, why, or somebody wrote a number down, called you an hour later. You really didn't know, and then they can watch an ad, and then go to the, then people watch an ad, and then go to the website, right? But in today's day and age, if you use Facebook advertising, if you use pay advertising, there's so many tools that allow you to track the whole funnel, the whole funnel of customer acquisition. Even for RIAs, you know, if they, they if they do it well, they can go from 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 running an ad, seeing all the way to a funded account, and see, you know. They may only get one or two accounts from Barron's, but they may be huge compared to 50 accounts from the Wall Street Journal, which mm-hmm. are not as effective. So, so uh, just the, the amount of tools that exist today to be able to track traction and to understand the behavior of your customers are just amazing. There's, you know, everything in the world is cyclical. I'm old enough to have seen everything. And uh, with the rise of all the robo-advisors, which are going to be the answers and drive everybody out of business, those have become such commodities that... Uh, that really RIAs have a great opportunity to really differentiate themselves and, and really uh, add value. So, so, so I think it's, uh, it's pretty interesting where we, where we are today vis-a-vis that, that whole market. Well, and, and there's not many people who know more about the financial industry than you do. And, and obviously with your experience at TradeStation and, and the experience to follow, which, which we'll cover a little bit, but you know, in the interest since you brought it up, you know, what, what do you see that, you know, the value that an RIA, you know, brings today over, you know, over the wealth front to the Robinhood. Why isn't the world just going to go to wealth front and Robinhood? You know, listen, I, I, uh, I, I, it's just my opinion. So, so there's a lot of smart people, but, but I think that, uh, that there's so much data out there and so little information. People are over flooded, right? You could, you could literally spend uh, your entire day reading news and never be done, right? You could probably take all the news of one day and take you a week to read it all, right? So, so taking all that data, making information out of it is important. So I think like everything else, to the extent somebody has a particular expertise in a particular market, or a particular segment, uh, they can spend the time and dedicate to specialize in that. And people want real information, people want help. And I think no matter how much things go digital, and they will, but that interface may be digital where I'm gonna call my RA, now I'm gonna to talk to them via, via text, right? Uh, and, and understand opportunities or, or look at his app and look at investment opportunities. So I think there's a real opportunity to take data and put it into information and to share your expertise and really add value to folks that really uh, wanna, not everybody has the time to be self-directed and do everything on your own. And everybody has to do, has a research, has the time to research whether option A is better than option B and having people like that is very helpful. The reality is that that uh, most family offices, most wealth in this country has advisors helping them. 
So, so, so if, if the wealthiest need advisors, I certainly would argue that just about everyone need, needs advisors. It's like golf. I always say it, you know, never, never feel bad about getting a lesson, right? Because the professionals get a lesson all day, every day. Um, and so, you know, to your point, uh, you know, about wealth management, right? Even family offices, we have advisors um, as my family has an advisor as well. And I think what advisors bring that's, you know, interesting is not just the portfolio approach, right? I think obviously the investment expertise is, is very beneficial and the planning expertise is very beneficial, which I do think is a major differentiator for advisors and what they should be focusing on as well. You know, at least speaking from my own personal experience as an advisor and now as a customer of an advisor is the planning side is really important more than the portfolio allocation side these days as you can outsource more and more the portfolio allocation. But the psyche part, I think is really important, right? Of like when you get the bouts of volatility, you know, as we saw during the COVID crisis, part of my job when I was at Credit Suisse during the financial crisis was just bringing peace of mind to my clients, right? Having an ear to talk to and allowing them to give some hopefully sound and rational advice. You know, none of us have a crystal ball, but being able to talk to my clients and make them feel a lot more comfortable about where we're at in the market and not hit the sell button. And I think that that's the hardest part with even a wealth front or a betterment, right, is, um, you know, while I think very highly of those platforms, there's nothing at the end of the day that truly prevents them from hitting the sell button when everyone, you know, is, is panicking and, and there's blood in the streets, as they say. And so I- hundred percent. You need a little psychologist, right? Yeah. To help you through. Uh, and, and, and in a lot of ways, I have a feeling that our eyes are as much psychologists as they are financial advisors. Absolutely. And so, you know, kind of getting back to the, the trade station, the entrepreneurial side, there's not many people who have been able to go to a company um, at its relatively early stage, grow it, and then sell it to a publicly traded company, let alone an international publicly traded company like Monex, and then, you know, have an executive position, you know, within Monex. It's a pretty interesting ride. You know, what what kind of, how did all that come about, right? At, at the end of the day, why did you guys look to sell? You know, what were you looking for in a partner and what were some of the lessons learned when selling your business? Yeah, so so um, I, I, got, I got lucky sometimes, you know, it's good to be uh, lucky. Better be it's lucky better than be, good. <laughs> exactly, baby. So, so we're a public company and um, um, uh, Interactive Brokers actually ended up buying 5% of the company. And uh, once you get five, past 5% as a public company, you have to file and say what your intentions are. And when they, they went past 5%, I started getting my phone started ringing and saying, hey, if you want to sell, uh, we're interested in buying. The reality is I'm a very passionate person and people thought I would die uh, and put uh, that my share of the trade station on my casket yeah. uh, to adorn it. Uh, but, but for me, it, it was a business and, and I've been do I did it for 20 years, it's a long time. To do, to do one thing. So uh, as part of that, we initiated a process where JP Morgan represented us. Uh, we had uh, a couple of strategics that, that, that came to the table, a couple of, uh, of, um, of, of venture uh, private equity firms that came to the table. And at the end, uh, Monix provided the highest offer. And uh, I stayed on and over time I became CEO of the company, joined the board, I was the only English speaker uh, or non-Japanese non speaker, I should say, mm -hmm. uh, on the board. And it was a terrific ride. It was, uh, it was certainly uh, 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 very fortunate to have worked uh, at Trade Station and then at Monarchs. It was great experience, great opportunity, and I enjoyed every minute of it. 
what about the culture of Monex? Meaning, you know, as, as, a, as an entrepreneur myself, you know, Halo's my baby. I started it from, you know, when it was just myself and my co-founder, a little square office. It's, it's personal, right? It's not just business, it's personal. Um, you know, and you always want to look for good partners that share your same values. What did Monex, you know, really show you of why they were going to be a good partner? And how did you make that decision? Like, what did you even think about? You know, um, you, can, you, can, you can talk to people and see what their culture or they're all about. And I felt that uh, the trade station's culture was pretty aligned with Monex's culture. Uh, the chairman of, Mon of Monex, Oki Matsumoto, is uh, uh, an incredible guy uh, and, uh, and, and someone who understands. He was a partner at Goldman Sachs who understands uh, American culture and certainly American culture and Japanese culture and very, very different. But, but I give credit to Oki because he let me run the company, continue to run the U.S. the way I run it. And he wasn't trying to run it the way he tried to do things in Japan and, and we had subsidiaries in China. We didn't do that within every, every territory. It's a pretty big world and, uh, and, and, and things are very, very important to be done differently in, in each place. So our Australia company run different than our China, different than our Japan, different than the US and just have to learn what is acceptable and, and, and what, uh, what are the right norms and, and, and how do you, uh, what do you do? You know, I mean, in Japan, um, most, although it's changing, most employees are in one company for life. Imagine that. Uh, um, so, so, so it's very different and, and you really can fire employees as an example. Um, so it's, it's very interesting to see how you deal with things like that. Well, it's, it goes back to, you know, just finding the right partners. So it sounded like Monex, you know, really helped or offered you the autonomy over TradeStation so you guys could still, you know, run TradeStation in the way that you wanted to, you know, to run it and still see that vision through. What is the, what is the landscape for retail brokerage look like today? I mean, outside of obvious, you know, Robin Hoods of the world, but, you know, what do, where do you see retail brokerage going from here? Is Robin Hood just going to eat the world in regards to stock trading or, or what's next, do you think? No, yeah, um... So it's, it's a fast evolving, very competitive space. I mean, the, the revenue generation engine for brokers has really been impaired because uh, when I was in the industry, we can collect commissions, commissions have gone to zero. Uh, we could make money on spreads and interest rates. Interest rates are virtually at zero. Uh, so so it's, it's a place that's pretty tough uh, to make money today. Um, you know, I, I can't predict who will be the winner, but what I can say is, is that there's so much disruption going on. There's players everywhere, even, even Google announced yesterday, I don't know if you saw, that their, 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 their wallet is, is really now part Venmo, uh, part bank, but they're not really a bank, um, and, 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 it's, it's, and, a, and a payment processor. Right, so I could so so it's um, it, it's interesting because you have Facebook that's looking to get into the finances, you have Google that's getting to look, looking to get into the finances, you got Amazon uh, who's, who's very smart about the finances, you have Apple that that could, you know has has the Apple Pay, yeah, so, you know, PayPal, yeah, yeah, correct. So so it's 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 interesting. I think that the winner will be the consumer. Because I think uh, the availability and the tools uh, will continue to increase at a, at a lower and lower price. I, I, I don't think it's a 
great industry to be at, but it's a big industry. So if you're an innovative disruptor, it has great appeal, but if you're an incumbent, it's really tough and you can see how more and more firms are, are, are consolidating, right? E-Trade traded and, and Ameritrade traded. Uh, so, so it has to be consolidated. It's an industry where e, e, the, the incremental, every incremental dollar of, our, of, of a trade has, brings high margin, there's very high fixed cost and, 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 and very high incremental margins as a result. Uh, so it's, a, it's an industry that continues to be disrupted. It's an industry that's making money has been has been tough. So you have to find ways to generate revenue to be innovative. Uh, and and I think that uh, it all bodes well for somebody like you that can bring a differentiated product to those brokers and to those RIAs that can that can really really uh, give customers uh, what they're looking for, which is sort of a lower risk, uh, less slightly higher return type products. I appreciate that. I mean, I think that that's where a really interesting time, as, as you said, within the financial markets. And obviously there's an impact on business models as you're talking about from the retail side and, and there's an impact on our own portfolios, right? And the, the risk gap right now between stocks and bonds is the highest it's ever been um, with interest rates literally you know, negative across most parts of the world, uh, including the United States on an inflation adjusted basis. Um, and then obviously where equity markets are today, the, the Fed is just forcing everyone to, to buy more and more stocks, even for people who are supposed to be retiring because you, know, you can't afford to lose money, sure enough, when you're saving. You can't go anywhere money. else. Yeah, and you need that bridge between the risk gap and, and you know, not talking about halos, that's not what this podcast is really about. But I do think it's interesting that these types of market dynamics bring out new you know, business models, new products and, and just new innovation that ultimately helps solve these really challenging problems. You know, we're doing it on the protective investing side, but there's so many other new models, you know, that are rolling out to solve other parts of, of uh, you know, areas of problems within people's portfolios and just finance in general. But I, I'm like you, I'm really interested in, and I know everyone always talks about it, but, you know, just looking five and 10 years down the road, where is Amazon? Where is PayPal? Where is Facebook? Where is Google? Where is Apple? Where's Netflix even for that matter, um, you know, in regards to wealth management. Um, and, and I don't think it's about an if, I think it's about a when, um, they're already there. But I also think that there's a lot of things that they will do to help partner and provide value added services to the custodians. So it's not a winner takes all, in my humble opinion. Um, I see more of a collaborative effort as you're already seeing with you know, the folks of like JP Morgan and Amazon um, and the partnerships they've, they've created. And so flipping gears past, um, you know, the trade station side, but, you know, you relatively recently started a VC fund, um, which is a very interesting time to raise capital and, and also to deploy capital. You know, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that mindset. What made you start a VC fund? You know, how did you go about raising the fund and, and what opportunities do you see in the market today? Yeah. So, so if you'd have asked me, um, Five years ago, that was going to be a venture capitalist today. I would have told you you were crazy, because uh, really, until 2017, I, I, I invested a little bit of money and done well in venture. That wasn't really what I did. I was about operating a company and scaling a company. Uh, but I was approached by the managing partner of Arthur Anderson, which was my first employer. He he had had incredible track record uh, of angel investment, uh, close to 40 percent, 38 percent over 22 years. 
and uh, he, he had an interest in starting a fund. So we started fund one, friends and family. Now we're raising fund two. But the idea was to invest uh, in, 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 great, in great entrepreneurs. The reality is that for most startups, uh, where they start is not necessarily where they end. So what you're betting most of all is on the jockey, right? You want a great horse, but at the end of the day, uh, you're getting married to that jockey. You wanna make sure the jockey is gonna, is gonna win at all costs, no matter which horse you put them on. So, so uh, the reason why, why Bill asked me to join and, and, and start the fund together was he felt that my experience scaling companies and my experience talking to mentoring, make, mentoring uh, entrepreneurs would be really helpful because what we do is we get really involved with those companies. We, we help them grow. Uh, we help with the open connections. We help them really uh, scale and, and find ways. So we normally will, will not invest in somebody that we cannot help somehow. Uh, that we don't have a role that we can open up and that we feel that they're an inflection point where we can get involved. And it's all tech. Uh, we don't invest in anything that has inventory or anything that's a uh, high capex. Um, very few companies that have AR uh, and, uh, and they, have, they have to have some kind of angle uh, in, in the US, uh, not, not heavily regulated. Uh, and, and they have to have a moat. They need to have something differentiated. They need to know who they are. Uh, have a focus and, and uh, we need to believe that they can be, you know, number one, number two in a particular niche uh, because back to the original discussion, right? Which was uh, how important it is to know who you are. We want to know that they know who they are. That could change obviously, but at least if, if you have an entrepreneur that's all over the place, right? If you have a uh, Jeff Bezos who, who, who's not focused on books, but focused on building the whole guacamole it's, it's, it's pretty tough. You got to be focused on the avocado first, then you can build out the, the guacamole. I haven't heard that metaphor before. I like that. I haven't either. I haven't either. I better go uh, trademark it quickly. Yeah, I like it. Well, you got the, uh, the Miami influence going on with the avocado. Exactly. And guacamole. Yeah. Not quite. That's, that's got, avocado is Mexican, but uh, we, well, we have, I, the, you have the, the Cubans in Miami. The guacamole. Cubans, I, yeah. That's true. That is, yes. that is true. Um, yeah. And so, um, you know, kind of to that point, when you're looking at, um, you know, when you're looking at kind of portfolio companies, what are some of the industries and trends that you're targeting? I mean, I know you're targeting entrepreneurs. Is there a specific silo that you say, gosh, I, I really think this is, you know, kind of the next big thing? Yeah, we're, we're a diversified portfolio. We're not make, making one, you know, we're not betting on travel tech or AI tech or ag tech or fintech. But we're leveraging our, our, our experience and our, and our contacts uh, with companies where uh, we have an entrepreneur we can help. We have an entrepreneur that wants to be helped. We were pretty diversified. We don't have concentration of portfolios. As a matter of fact, we have out of the 19 companies we have in our two portfolios, five are in Israel. We have a very good uh, deal pipeline coming from Israel. Uh, 14 are in the U.S. distributed all over uh, we have a couple in Silicon Valley. We have a couple in the Northeast. We have uh, five or six in South Florida. So we're pretty diversified, very different industries, fintech, uh, health tech. We're all over uh, the map. Uh, but, but what's common is it's entrepreneurs that we could help, entrepreneurs that have a moat, entrepreneurs that can win uh, a niche and be number one or number two. And that's, that's what we like. You know, the last question I think I'll ask uh, on, on the VC side, and, uh, and of course I appreciate that color is, you know, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs who are coming in to give 
you know, their pitch to Salo, right? And, and just to any venture capitalist, you know, what's, what are kind of the do's and don'ts? Um, I, I think it's gotta be themselves. Uh, a lot of times they, uh, they try to, you know, they try to be different people than they are and that comes across. So I think just being themselves is important. Uh, knowing what you know, knowing what you don't know, uh, understanding where you need help. Uh, and think, you know, I think the biggest mistake a lot of these entrepreneurs make is um, either they don't raise enough capital or they're raising too much capital. In order to raise too much capital, they put a huge valuation on the company. I've seen so many companies that ended up, you know, with a, with a, with a get, being able to get easily a huge valuation, but then they trip. And when they go to raise money the next time, they're sort of in this, in, in, in this treadmill that's running faster and faster and faster, and they can catch. They can catch up because they're always ahead of their valuation. So I always give advice to to entrepreneurs, whether we invest or not, not to get ahead of themselves. Because if you end up uh, raising too much money at too much uh, a high valuation, that catches up with you eventually, and you you end up with a down round, which 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 you know there could be a great company with a down round just because they yeah. found some stupid money up front. That ended up hurting them. So, so to me, that it's it's that balance is so important and it's so hard to get. And also, uh, putting a, building a good team around you, right? Uh, one man one man shops are not uh, are not something that anybody want to invest in. No, I think that that's really uh, really sound advice, especially from a valuation standpoint, right? Is that you can go out and raise a truckload of money at a really high valuation, you start walking this you know high wire act into your next round and you know once uh, and if you have a down round that's uh, that's a very difficult situation to deal with uh, for the future of the company for sure yeah. um and so you know kind of getting back to the impact side right solo is you know, you're working on your venture capital fund you know what else are you doing in your life you know to create impact um you know you're actively involved with harvard and i know that's important to you too but you know whether it's harvard or other areas of your life what are you doing to really give back to the world and create impact you know, um, so, so I'm involved with, with various charities and I'm pretty involved with my alma mater, actually chair the campaign for, for the School of Business SMEO at, at Penn State. Uh, but to me, um, it, it's, it's not about having sort of an hour a week where you make impact. Uh, for me, it's about making an impact every minute of the day, right? Every conversation I have with somebody, I want to leave them better and create a positive experience for them. Uh, we live in a world that uh, just uh, there's so much negativity, so much chaos. Uh, and for me, if we could all focus on on being positive and making a positive impact in every person, uh, imagine how much world, how much better that world could be if if you could see every every person that for what they do wrong, but for what they do right. So so I try to make an impact by making every interaction, every person I meet with, uh, better. I think uh, it's a way of you know impact is a way of life. Right. It's about, you know, how we conduct ourselves as humans and obviously as businesses, Um, you know, number one thing is impact before profits and we live, eat and breathe it. And it was the first thing that Bijou and I wrote down on a piece of paper when we started Halo, even before our business plan is what do we want to stand for? Honest to God. And it was, we both wrote down, not verbatim, but pretty darn close. Yeah, creating positive impact before worrying about profit. If you solve for impact, the profit always comes. If you solve for profit saying, oh, once I make a lot of money, then I'm going to create a positive, you know, influence and impact in the world. In my humble opinion, it never works out that way. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, no. The, the important thing, by the way, is with a company is to solve a problem, right? If you can solve a problem, the profit will come, right? You'll build, you'll build a very, very valuable. So, so, so often people get confused as to what they're doing. So I always start, you know, you get to, to a pitch, always be very clear on what's the problem you're trying to solve. Because people get enamored with technology, what they're doing, but forget, lose sight of what is it that, uh, that, that they're trying to solve. My, my father was a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley, and he always used to tell me, you know, solve a really big problem that needs to be solved that only you can solve, Correct. right? And, and that's when you have something that's, that's a really good business, right? And um, kind of as we wrap up, Salo, you know, what is, the, what is the advice that you'd be just giving, you know, entrepreneurs and young folks these days about, you know, whether they want to start a business or whether they want to become a venture capitalist or they want to have, a, you know, the gold watch from Monex, right? And work their whole careers. What's the type of advice that you're even giving your, you know, the beautiful family that you've got? Um, and, and what should we leave with? Yeah, so, so for me is, uh, is it's all about the journey, not the destination, right? You, you, you don't have to wait to be happy. If you're not waking up every day and feeling fulfilled and feeling happy, then, then quit your job and go do something else. And I love companies that will give you money. You know, if you're, uh, if, if, if 90 days you're not happy, they'll pay you to leave, right? So, so there's companies that do that, that I find amazing. Um, so to me, it's about, it's about making sure you're doing what you love every day and that you do your best. There's, that you worry about those things you can control and that you just, just crank and, uh, and, uh, and make sure that, that at the end of the day, you feel like you gave it your all because uh, you can only make yourself happy. You have to, don't worry about everybody else because if you're not happy, you got bigger problems. Mm-hmm.